Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we look at a different book in the public policy arena and talk to the author about why they wrote the book and what recommendations they have for the public policy sphere. This week, we're talking to Tim Grossclose. He's the author of Left Turn. He's a political scientist at UCLA, and he decided to take rigorous political science methods to the question of media bias and determine if the media are biased in one way or the other. You can probably guess from the title of the book, Left Turn, that he thinks the media are biased to the left. But we're going to talk to Tim about the methods he used and why he thinks it's so. Hello, Tim Grossclose. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Tevi, thank you. Great to be here. Well, we're really glad you have you on board today at New Books in Public Policy and look forward to talking to you about your book, Left Turn. But first, I'd like to start off with the question that I always ask authors, which is, who are you and how did you come to write this book? Uh, well, uh, as you said, Tim Grossclose. I'm a professor of political science and economics at UCLA. And how did I come to write this book? Um, well, it all started uh, – I, I think that you know, for how much conservatives talk about how they uh, dislike tenure in our universities, I, I, I don't think this book would have ever – been written if I didn't have tenure. It was uh, I was at Stanford University and I just all but gotten tenure. I knew there was nothing else I could do uh, to try to help my chances for tenure. And I thought, well, now's the now's the time to do a big project, maybe something controversial. And it just occurred to me to do something on media bias. It's, you know, lots of people argue about whether the media are biased or not. And it occurred to me, hey, someone should try to get some statistics on this, do the proper statistical analysis, and, and, and try to solve the question. When, when that came to my head, uh, the second thing that was influential when this happened is that uh, it turns out I'm good friends with Steve Levitt, the author of Freakonomics. And when this came to my head, I said, oh, this is totally something Steve Levitt might do. And I thought, oh, okay, what a, what a great idea. Uh, let's see if I can implement this. And uh, one of the first things I did is, is called up my good friend and frequent co-author, Jeff Milo, and, and we talked about doing an article. We eventually wrote that article. It was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. It's called a measure of media bias, and it was just what we set out to do was to, to create an objective statistical way to measure the bias or the, the slant of different media outlets. We gave a specific number that said, you know, this is how liberal or conservative these 20 different news outlets were. We, we published that in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and while doing it, uh, it occurred to me that you know this this might be this topic might be interesting enough to do a whole book on this. And uh, once I saw the success of Freakonomics, I saw oh, if Steve can do it, uh, Levitt that is, uh, maybe I can do it. And uh, eventually, around the time, right around the time when that article was, was published, I thought, well, there's a lot of other topics in media bias that we really don't address in this article. You kind of need a whole book to do it. And I thought, let's, let's extend this um, and let's write, write a book on media bias. 
you know, it's interesting that you say that you couldn't have written the book without tenure. Because there's one point in the book where you describe all the offers that were just kind of flooding in about how popular you were in academia. How, how do you explain your apparent conservatism or willing to write about conservative topics and the willingness of liberal academic departments to want to hire you? Let's see. Yeah, that happened. So I think that um, it is true that right after I, I published that uh, article, that uh, my one, I published that article, uh, there were some very good universities uh, that, that asked to hire me. Now, w- one was Yale University, and I think that that offer came despite the work on media bias. Uh, they wanted to hire me for my previous work on uh, on Congress and kind of more general American politics. And uh, now I think that given the the left turn, and, and I and my name wasn't uh, as prominent with the lay public. I, I think it. It did kind of hurt me, you know, when you write a, a topic like left turn, how liberal media bias distorts the American mind. Uh, a number of progressive professors could say, "Oh, come on, this is outrageous. This is so sensational. This is selling out to the Fox News crowd." So the the, the book probably hurt me, whereas the, the the article, at least that was published in a, a peer reviewed journal. Um, even then, I, I don't think I've, I've ruined chances to to get. Offers at, at other universities. I think I've probably hurt them slightly. We'll see. Who knows? Uh, with the book, that is. Uh, but one thing that was more important than anything about the, the tenure aspect of it. Um, this project, it, the the article took something like four years, and then the book took an, an additional four years. And one thing that that um, people outside academia don't realize is when you when you don't have tenure. It's very hard to do something, a project that will last multiple years. What happens is all of a sudden if you're doing this project and say it's been three years and your deans and department chairs say, hey, what have you been doing for the last three years? And you say, oh, I'm working on my manuscript, you know, this uh, big book. they get a little suspicious, like, you know, maybe you've become lazy and you really aren't doing that much research. So if you're going to do any project that, you know, if you're an assistant professor without tenure and you're going to do any project that takes more than, say, six months to do, uh, my advice is wait until you get tenure to, to start that. So um, it's partly just the, just the timing of the project, how long it took, that, it, it, that uh, having tenure was important for that for that reason. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we had Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who had a book. Uh, uh, yeah, just read that book. Yeah. So I'd love to have the two of you on and uh, do a debate sometime. But uh, but for now, let's talk about your book. And you've got this interesting concept of the PQ, or the political quotient. It's a scale that goes from zero to 100, and Barney Frank's a 100, and Jim DeMint's a zero. And you find that the average American is about a 25. Can you talk about that and why it's not 50? And I know in your book you say that there's a lot of pressure to make the middle of the road 50. Well, actually, okay. In, in one way, it, it is fifty. Um, here, here's the the point of my book is that um, in our current world, where um, media bias has distorted our thinking, so in our in our current world, I, I'd argue fifty is uh, about the average American's political quotient. Now, this happens to be about the political quotient of Arlen Specter when he was a Republican, and so conservatives call him a rhino. Uh, I wouldn't. Quite go that far. I would say when he was a Republican, he was almost a rhino. He was just barely a Republican. He was just right in between, right on that border between Republican and Democrat. And I'd say that's about where the the current average voter is. Now in the book, I say that uh, 25 
would be the PQ of the average American voter if you could get rid of media bias. So, so my point is the 25 PQ is um, something about a little bit more, slightly more liberal than Jack Kemp, uh, slightly more conservative than Rick Lazio. Uh, I think Mitt Romney may be something about a 25. He didn't serve in Congress, so I don't know his size PQ. But uh, but the point of the book is to try to measure the effect of media bias and then try to estimate what would – how would uh, the average American voter think and vote if it weren't for that media bias? And that, that I argue, would, would be about 25. You also say, interestingly, that every mainstream media outlet is biased to the left and that you look at 20 – Oh, the largest outlets, I guess. I'd love to hear how you came up with these 20 outlets, but it's 18 of the 20 largest outlets, and uh, 18 of those 20 are biased to the left, and the only exceptions are Fox and the Washington Times. Can you talk a little bit about what it means that the mainstream media has this kind of bias? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we we uh, did do that. So this uh, those 20 uh, all came from the original article that I wrote with Jeff Milo, and it was uh, just kind of by hook or crook how we decided on those. We started off with the New York Times. We said, okay, we want to do more than just the New York Times, and we did all the three evening networks. And it, it just kind of grew, like, what are the most important news outlets? We thought, well, we need at least one Fox outlet, and it seems like the, the equivalent the, the equivalent at Fox to the network news evening shows would be a special report. So we... That was the one we picked for Fox. Uh, so, well, is there a conservative newspaper out there? And lots of people say, oh, the Washington Times is. Um, the New York Post might have been a, another alternative. But uh, once we got this list, turns out we had 19 on it. And we were ready to stop with there. But then uh, you know, someone said, what about the Wall Street Journal? So, okay, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Let's add the Wall Street Journal. And finally, we stopped it at 20. We could have done more. It's just that it takes a lot, uh, lots of effort to, to estimate these slant quotients for these different outlets. It's something like a month, uh, maybe two, just to gather the data. So uh, we decided at some point we'd have to stop, and we did We did 20. And uh, we felt that these were about the 20 most important news outlets in the, in the United States. Some would argue Washington Times maybe doesn't belong on that list. It only has a, a subscription rate of something like 100,000. But we wanted at least one supposedly conservative newspaper. And we, we, we did find that they were right of – the Washington Times was right of center. Uh, but, and as you said, so of those 20, the only two that were right of center were the Washington Times and Special Report, Fox News' Special Report. Um, I should say there's kind of a continuum. So if, if people look at my book – and actually they can see uh, – the slant quotients for these 20 on my website. They don't have to buy the book. Just go to timgrossclose.com. And you can see there's kind of a continuum. There actually are some, even though 18 of the 20 are to the left, there are some that I would call left-leaning moderate news outlets. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the News Hour with Jim Lehrer had, I think, something like a 56 slant quotient, so just about six points left of center. Uh, the same was true Good Morning America. I think it was about 56 or 57 and then meanwhile, it uh, goes all the way up to the New York Times was like a 74 on that scale. But actually, didn't you say the Wall Street Journal was more liberal than the New York Times, according to well, that's, the That's right. Yeah, uh, I often don't mention that because I need to explain that. When w the, the Wall Street Journal, according to our estimate, had uh, I, I can't, it's like an 84 or 85 slant quotient. Now, the, the, the 
the caveat I should mention, it did not include the editorials of the Wall Street Journal. So that's only the news pages. Even with that, I think lots of people were surprised. We found the Wall Street Journal news pages was even slightly more liberal than the New York Times. Now, one other caveat I should mention, all the data came from about 2002-2003 period. So this was all before Murdoch. Uh, bought the Wall Street Journal, and I, I suspect once he has some time, I suspect Murdoch will try to uh, put in a, 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 a better balance of political views within the news pages at the Wall Street Journal. I suspect that that slant quotient will move toward the center, maybe eventually, maybe even moving right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so I should mention that all, all that data on the Wall Street Journal came before Murdoch was involved with it. Um. It's, it's interesting that you say that the, with the Wall Street Journal, you discounted or you did not count the editorial pages. With these other news outlets, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, for example, did you count the editorial pages as part of your analysis? Uh, no. For that original article, uh, we, we threw out all editorial page data, all letters to the editors, all book reviews. Uh, partly, um, one reason was just that there's really not as much question about where editorial pages stand. But the other is just once we got some of the data – we looked at the method that we used, which was to count think tank citations, the, the various uh, think tanks, that um, our method just didn't seem to work that well. For instance, uh, um, we're finding things like uh, – I remember we had a, a pilot study with the O'Reilly factor. We were finding him to the left of the USA Today editorials, and I thought, ah, that just doesn't make sense. I think what's going on is that with editorials, people will sometimes – Mention the other side, and sometimes do it in a sarcastic way. And if our research, if our research assistants weren't catching that sarcasm, then it would make it look artificially the opposite of the, the slant that it really had. You mentioned think tanks in there, and I thought your section on think tanks was fascinating. You said that a lot of uh, that, that an important part of media bias is that the journalists selectively decide who to interview and they could find people to say whatever they want in in looking for researchers and they choose liberal think tank scholars more often than conservative think tank scholars and they claim that those liberal think tank scholars are more scholarly but you found the opposite that conservative think tanks tend to be more scholarly and their scholars are more likely to have a PhD how did you do that research uh, well yeah so that's uh, that was all, lots of that was anecdotal evidence so see now you hear that on the left, especially, you know, I live in the world in academia. All my liberal colleagues will, will tell me that, oh, you know, liberals are just smarter and we're the, we're more scholarly and more honest and factual. Um, well, maybe so, but um, what's important for my study is whether that is true with the sample of think tanks that, that I looked at. And, and Milo and I had a sample of 200 think tanks. Uh, not decided by us. Actually, we, we found this website that said where to do research, and it had a list of these 200 think tanks. We thought though that was a good, what exogenous way. That's a, a term social scientists use. The way that basically means the, the key was that it wasn't selected by us. So uh, we chose that list. Within that list, I would argue that the the conservative think tanks were actually more scholarly than the liberal think tanks, and so. For instance, um, according to some of my liberal colleagues and actually one left-wing blog called The Center on 
budget and policy priorities as uh, one of the most scholarly of the left think tanks on that list. But you look on their website, most of the scholars at that left wing think tank do not even have a PhD. And then I just looked at some of the most scholarly of the right wing think tanks on my list. This is like Hoover Institution, American Enterprise Institute, uh, the Political Economy Research Center. And I happen to know some people at those at those think tanks and virtually all of the scholars at, at those think tanks, at least all the senior level scholars have a Ph.D. and also have some very prestigious honors to them. You know, some have won Nobel Prizes. Others are in the National Academy of Sciences. And places like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has had none who had anything like that. And also the same thing if you looked at peer-reviewed um, uh, scholarly articles, the same was true. So at least I – mean, I didn't do a systematic study, but at least my casual observation looking just at the most scholarly of the right wing, most scholarly of the left wing, it was – clear that uh, the right-wing think tanks were much more scholarly than the left-wing think tanks. I feel like I should add at this point that Hudson Institute, where I work, uh, does have a lot of PhDs, including myself. I also uh, did an analysis similar to this not long ago that I talked to you about uh, later, but I was looking at where you're going to find PhDs in think tanks, and my analysis found that the older the think tank, the more likely it was to have a higher percentage of PhDs. So newer think tanks, of which CBPP, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, is one, tend to be more political and have lower percentages of PhDs. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, I can see how that could be. You know, things like the Hoover Institution, uh, I think that started around like uh, 1940. Yeah, I earlier, guess one, Yeah. And uh, Brookings was one of the first, started in the 1910s, AI. So a lot oh, of that's right. Yeah. Uh, Brookings, yeah, that, that's, uh, I'd argue, very scholarly. Now, some people, I, I, here's where I may disagree with some conservatives. Conservatives sometimes will call Brookings the left wing, and, and that was not what I found. I actually looked at some of the, the uh, uh, members of Congress that cited them, and Republicans are citing Brookings. Just about as often as as Democrats are, so I, I call Brookings a, a centrist, maybe left leaning centrist think tank, but definitely centrist, not not far left. Well, Brookings is also from the old school model of think tanks that hire people on the left and on the right. I'd say more people on the left, but they do have representatives of both sides. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Another really interesting part of the book is you talk about how this issue of media bias just the very fact that you're studying it inflames passions and you show some of the nasty emails you got after your article came out and you found out that only conservatives actually do objective studies of media bias that it's a, an issue that liberals tend not to touch i guess you um are more willing to wear the flak jacket is that it <laughs> well my point was on this and um I uh, compared uh, my decision to a good friend of mine. His name's Justin Wolfers. I uh, hope people will, will Google him. He's like a very left-wing guy, but uh, a good friend, very pleasant to talk to. We we agree on just about nothing politically, but uh, I love arguing with him. We get along and have some, I think, really good conversations. And, and I, I talked about him, and I talked about some of the studies that he has done. And... Uh, Things like uh, he did a study that found that um, the, the death penalty doesn't seem to have much deterrent effect for for murder, and, and I argued that that uh, if you're a, a left winger, there's certain uh, studies that would interest you more than if you're a right winger, and I think 
a lot of us would kind of have a suspicion, ah, you know, the death penalty, it probably doesn't have that much deterrent effect. There's so many people who, who commit these murders in the heat of passion, and uh, they think they're not going to be caught. And so, you know, it probably doesn't. You know, if, even I think cons- some conservative scholars might think, ah, it's going to be hard to find evidence of that. Do I really want to spend six months or three years of my life doing this study just to give some evidence that allows liberals to say, see, I told you so. And, and so I argue the same thing is true with if you want to do an objective study of media bias. So I think everyone knows that if you go to a typical national newsroom, mainstream newsroom, that it's going to just be filled overwhelmingly with liberals. And so, yeah, liberals, I think, temper their liberalism when they're reporting, but does anyone really believe that they do that perfectly, that they actually go across the center? And yeah, I don't think anyone really believes that. And if you're a scholar doing these objective studies, you think, do I really want to spend you know six months or up to three years of my life doing this big, long study just to report results that allows the conservatives to say, I told you so? And so um, – and that's, I think, part of the, my motivation why I chose this topic. That um, you know, I'm interested in this, and as a conservative, you know, I think I do want to show that that you know, at least my hunch is that the conservatives are right on this. Um, and so, um, yeah. Then you said that uh, it is true that uh, conservatives have tended to do this. I know uh, six scholars uh, who have at least, like uh, the the statistical training of at least something like uh, uh, the economics Ph.D. level, who have done an objective study of media bias. And of those six, uh, I think I reported this, uh, five out of the six are either conservative or or libertarian. I think only one out of the six would be left of center in his or her political views. You know, the the issue with with media bias, you said one thing that I I, I put on a challenge. You said, does anybody really believe that media bias uh, doesn't affect reporters. Well, I think you get reporters say it all the time. Well, you know, maybe some, there are more liberals in the newsroom, but that doesn't affect how we report. And you, Eric Alterman wrote a whole book claiming that there's there's no media bias. And in fact, that uh, he thinks that there's conservative bias on at least on economic news. So, how, how do you how, how do people who are of that camp uh, react to the objective information you have in your book? Uh, yeah, you're right. They uh, they reject it. Although you know, I wish they would read the, the, those same people. Um, I wish they would read my, my one chapter where I said, walk a mile in the shoes of a centrist. And my key is this PQ. I mean, actually, the, the, one of the most amazing things in my book is that there's four parts. The, the longest part is part one, which I describe PQs, political quotients, and it's, I don't even talk about media bias. So you know, I have this, the, the, the biggest portion of my book does not even talk about media bias. The, and the key is I wanted to establish that the average American voter has this 50 PQ thinks about like Arlen Specter when he had uh, when he was a conservative. And the same point I show with these PQs that Joe Lieberman has a 74 PQ. So Joe Lieberman by this PQ measure is about 24 points left of center. And I think these people like like Eric Alterman would say, oh yeah, well if you're going to you know claim that Joe Lieberman is left of center, you know lots of them I think. Would say, oh yeah, the mainstream media—they they have a conservative bias, but yeah, Joe Lieberman's even more conservative than those news outlets, and 
part of my point is to say, no, Joe Lieberman really is not that conservative. He's to the left of the average American voter. And I think if they could just read that chapter, and I should emphasize the average American voter. If you looked at the average world voter, that's probably not true. You know, Joe Lieberman probably is to the right of the average world voter. But given how I define centrists, I, I think – Anyone, I think maybe even Eric Alterman would say, well, yeah, if you're going to find centrists that way, yeah, the media are left of center. Yeah, I, I just need to mention you, you talked about the chapter title, Walk a Mile in the Shoes of a Centrist. The, the, the book has a lot of charts and numbers and, and math in it, but the, the titles are actually very funny. It seems like you spent a lot of time uh, trying to come up with uh, clever or uh, amusing and b- both titles. So, um, uh, well, be credible. you know, I'll reveal this. Uh, hardly anyone's noticed this, but. Um, uh, a big chunk of the uh, chapter titles are Elvis lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Excellent. It. Excellent. You're one of the first to comment, actually, on the the, the chapter titles. But uh, well, new books so, on public policy. We're always breaking new ground. Yeah, that's right. So if they sound clever, I, I can't take credit. Elvis deserves the credit for, for that. Always like to give credit to the king. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> But there is a lot of um, math, as I said, in the book, in charts, and not in a boring way. I mean, I think you make it readable and entertaining. But do you have to be a real mathematician to be a political scientist these days? You know, I think if if you are conservative, you do. Um, in fact, I remember at MIT, uh, I, I had a guy at the office next door. His name's Archon Fung. He, he's at the Kennedy School now. Uh, this was a guy who was a um, – as an undergrad, he was a physics major, but very left-wing views, and he went into the the branch of political science that we call political theory, which is um, it's more like political philosophy. And I remember thinking, and he has very left-wing views. And I remember thinking that if, if Archon had been, had right-wing views, there's no way he would have gone to that to be very to be right-wing and to go into uh, political theory part of, of political science, that, that's just kind of a death knell to your career. You've, there's no way you can make it. If you are conservative, and I believe that if Archon had been conservative and had that physics degree, he would have gone into one of the fields that I'm in. That We sometimes call it formal theory, which is uh, this very mathematical branch of political science or, or methodology, this uh, statistical branch of political science. In the, in the first part of my career, the first... Ten years. That's what I strayed to. I didn't do any sort of um, uh, topic that was politically charged. I stuck to the numbers, and I think that if you're conservative and you want to make it as political scientist, uh, at least till you get tenure, you got to stick to like this kind of objective numbers part fields within political science. And you've taught at six different universities. Is that right? Uh, there's a number. Yeah, I have to count them all up. Now, some of them were just. Uh, faculty research positions. Some of them were, uh, yeah, just uh, research positions where I didn't teach. But uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been in a number of places. Have you found a great deal of variation in the bias or proclivities of the faculty in the, in the different places in which you've taught? Uh, yes. All of them are left of center. Oh, with one exception, I taught at Stanford Business School. And I would say of the Someone even did a poll of the um, – the, I remember that the business school at Stanford University, um, according to this poll, was the most centrist department in the entire university. And I think it was slightly left-leaning. I think it was something like 55 percent, 60 percent Democrats, 
uh, 45 or 40% Republican. So, you know, that was a business school. Uh, but of all the political science departments, they're pretty darn uh, liberal. UCLA, maybe about the most, no, uh, UCLA and MIT, I'd argue. It, it, it's probably just a function of where it is that um, I don't think many conservatives want to move to West Side LA. Uh, there's no conservatives, very few uh, around. Same thing with Cambridge, Massachusetts. But um, places like um, I taught at Ohio State, and it definitely leaned left. But there were—I'm not sure there were any like hardcore Marxists in that in that department, and a, a couple of conservatives, and uh, in, in lots and lots of kind of left-leaning centrist kind of uh, Joe Lieberman types uh, in there. So it, it varies uh, according to the department. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, I did my graduate work and my PhD at University of Texas at Austin, which I would argue was certainly liberal, but kind of in a, an FDR liberal sense, not in a you know, Jacques Derrida liberal sense or in a radical or deconstructionist or even Marxist sense. So I, that, I think that makes right. a difference. I've even looked up. Well, I think the, the I think the county where Austin is Travis County. Do I have that right? Uh, I looked yep. this up. Uh, so all the Texans, I say, oh, Austin, that's the island of liberals. But I looked at Travis County voted only something like 65-35 Obama to, Mc, to McCain. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Santa Monica uh, probably voted 80-20 or at least 75-25. So even though Texans claim Austin is, is, is very liberal, I, I'd argue it's – not that liberal when you compare it to lots of other places. I, I would tell people it's Texas liberal. It's not actually yeah, that's liberal. right. Good point. Yeah, yeah. But um, if if you are a conservative in either a faculty lounge or in a newsroom, you you feel really lonely. You have that one study where you show that if you look at Slate, NBC, ABC, ninety nine percent of the newsroom votes for the Democrat in a typical presidential election. Uh, how does that have a does that have an impact on how the elections play out? Um, let's see. So uh, two points I should say. You know, not not only that. So I hope if people read my book, they'll see. I actually looked at uh, Slate Magazine. They not only gave a poll of their newsroom, they actually interviewed people and had their reporters explain why they voted. And the one McCain voter was extremely tepid in the support of McCain. And I argue I've experienced that someone who's in a you know just an overwhelmingly liberal environment. Some you know once it goes past eighty twenty, I'd argue that the conservatives you can feel kind of beaten down after you've gotten into a political debate where it's you versus the entire room. You, you kind of learn how unfruitful some of those things and what a waste of time and just how it can put you in a bad mood the rest of the day. And you just become quieter and say I'm going to keep to myself. Yeah, so I think that's. Uh, pardon me. Of course, that tepidity might have had something to do with McCain's performance as a candidate. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe so, uh, but um, it's more than that. I think there's something just about when it starts to get over eighty twenty, when it becomes ninety ten or ninety three seven, like the typical newsroom. I, I think the that seven percent can get kind of beaten down. I think that's kind of uh, natural in any kind of group that, that way. So. Um, and uh, then he asked, "Does this, you know, influence the the news?" And and so I think so. Yeah, I think. And I have some quotes from uh, uh, people at the Washington Post who talk about, you know, in our newsroom, you just it's just unheard of to be pro life. That uh, you just cannot be, have that position. You know, that's just out of bounds within the newsroom. And it would be very hard to write an article 
uh, about that and then have to face the criticism uh, from your peers. Yeah, on that peer front and on the point you made earlier about getting beaten down, when I, when I was in graduate school, I had a friend, a colleague, come up to me at one point. He pulled me aside privately and he said, is it true that you've written for National Review, which I had, and I was uh, all prepared to get blasted from the left for having admitting to, admitting to doing so. And uh, I said, well, yes, I have. And he said, oh, I'm conservative, but I don't let anybody know. <laughs> so <laughs> poor guy, his senior graduate graduate student was uh, in the closet the whole time. It's true. I I've, uh, I reread 1984. This is uh, maybe two years ago. And I remember thinking, you know, and, and that uh, I can't remember the heroes. And Winston something was the hero, and he, he is not buying this totalitarian ideology that they're being fed. And he's not as brainwashed as everyone else. And he's wondering if there's other people who feel like him. And he you have to look for these little clues and. And I think that's true within academia. If you're a, especially if you're a grad student or an assistant professor, you, if you're conservative, you look around and you, sometimes you can spot the language. You, you know, the southern accent—that's one thing that may give you a clue. Ah, this guy may think like me. Maybe I can reveal myself uh, to him or her. It really is. Uh, you know, it's, there have been other, uh, I guess, tendencies that. Um... Uh, that, that had to be hidden in the past, and so now it's a now it's just a conservatism. Um, so it it, it kind of reminds me of the line you have in the book that uh, is reminiscent of the Blues Brothers. Uh, we've got both kinds of music in here, country and western. And so in the, <laughs> the newsroom or in academia, you've got both kinds, liberal and progressive, is what you say. Uh, so you also do a state by state analysis of what the PQ of the average voter is, and uh, I will tell listeners that uh, Utah, by this rating, is the most conservative state with a PQ of five point eight. And Vermont is the most liberal at 76.7. What, what did you find from the state PQs, and were there any real surprises in there? Um, less, I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think there's any real surprises. Um, you know, yeah, Utah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Vermont is one. Believe it or not, I was just on uh, YouTube today. It's for strange reasons, I saw... Um, Someone had mentioned a, a Reagan commercial from 1980, so I clicked on something else that had the NBC covering the 1980 election where Reagan won. And if I remember right, Vermont actually voted for Reagan in 1980. And so uh, that's a surprise. Somehow Vermont has just been trending to the left. Um, there's others like uh, Wisconsin. I just had a talk to a, a former student who's going to work for a political group in Wisconsin and um, I've been telling you, yeah, that is now a, a purple state, and it is. I, I, if it keeps going the way it's been trending, it's going to be almost perfectly in the middle, and, and that is going to be, you know, one of the key battleground states. Iowa, another thing. I think it might have been a little more left in the past, um, but um, yeah, and you just see uh, the other is that um, I always thought that the southern states would be uh, pretty conservative, but. Uh, that's not quite true. It's, it's the the most conservative were the western states like Utah, Wyoming, um, Oklahoma was one. You could almost say that's in the south, but um, uh, I guess that that would be a little bit of a surprise. Ohio, I used to think that was always a battleground state. That's moved a little bit to the right. I would say it's more like a right leaning center state than the perfectly center state it probably was a decade or two ago. Yeah, you have a couple of catchy phrases in, in the book, the uh, the distortion theory, I guess the idea is that you can have a completely factual article but still shade the conclusion. Can, can you talk a little about distortion? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's the point. So you know, this is um, you know, the accounting the article that I wrote. I've spent eight years re- researching this book, and done lots and lots of reading transcripts and articles on LexisNexis. And very, very rarely will I come across a sentence ever where I'll say that is false. That is just you know outrageous. Either something from the you know Fox News or Washington Times or from the MSNBC. I think it's very, very rare uh, that you see that. Instead, where, where the bias comes from is, is things that they don't report. And um, uh, I have a whole chapter on this where I do a case study of this L.A. Times article. Uh, it turns out the L.A. Times did this front-page article on admissions, freshman admissions at UCLA. Now, when this article was written, it turns out that I was on the faculty oversight committee for admissions at UCLA. And I read this article. I literally picked up the newspaper from my driveway, get inside, start reading this article, and I'm outraged by it. And and it made, by the way, it made UCLA look like it was a racist institution that was putting up challenges and obstacles for African American students to get in. And meanwhile, I knew that the opposite was true. You know, I was on this committee, and we were bending over backwards to do the opposite to try to help uh, improve the, the number of African Americans we admit. And so, even though I was outraged, I, I looked through this article, couldn't find one false statement, and it finally hit me. The, the reason I was mad was because. There's these 10 or 12 facts that I thought everyone should know these 10 or 12 facts that the the L.A. Times journalists failed to report. And these 10 or 12 facts were things that a conservative would want you to know. And meanwhile, she reported the facts that mainly the liberals wanted you to know. And that's, that's one aspect of uh, distortion theory. It's just within a topic, within an article, there's facts that it may get unreported. The other thing uh, is the subjects. It's the the entire subject that, that often I think liberals reporters don't report on. There are things like the Van Jones case when um, this was uh, the green job czar for Obama who eventually was a self-avowed communist. Once this started getting out in the press, especially like the, the conservative press, like Glenn Beck was reporting this, uh, he was getting under fire, and there even started to be members of Congress that wanted that were calling on him to resign. During this week where that was happening in Congress, the mainstream press, I know it, uh, definitely the New York Times published nothing on Van Jones, and then finally on Monday, the 36 hours after he resigned, they had a front-page article on that. But I would argue if you're a liberal journalist, such an article wouldn't interest you as much, and those are the things that get unreported, and that's, um, as you say, that's part of distortion theory. And and interestingly, you say in your book that that same week that the New York Times was ignoring Van Jones, they were obsessed with Betsy McCoy, who at the time was just a a former elected politician who really was not that influential, and it was odd to spend so much time on her. That's right. Uh, what she had done, she had said something about uh, the health care bill, Obama's, uh, Obamacare, and had said something about uh, the death panels. That, uh, so the, you know, the bill never officially called them death panels, but there was some sort of panel uh, that could make, at least counsel you on life or death decisions. And she said something that um, it was clearly an exaggeration. It seemed like it was actually false. She went too far and said that uh, they will do this. And this uh, politi- something. there's a website called something like PolitiFact Check, something like this. Called PolitiFact. PolitiFact, yeah. So it actually checked on this, and, and I'm convinced they were right, that uh, this Betsy, um, I can't remember, what, McCaughlin, was that? It's, called, it's pronounced McCoy. It looks like McCahey. McCoy, McCoy. Okay, okay. Uh, 
Um, so uh, I'll call her Betsy. Um, so she clearly got it wrong, and I think the political fact correctly pointed that out. And I, what I suspect was that there was a journalist at the New York Times saw this and said, oh, maybe I can build an entire article about this. And so uh, I remember reading this. Um, uh, literally, this is uh, Saturday morning early. My, my daughter's a figure skater. So there I am in this cold uh, – I got my – uh, winter coat on in Los Angeles, watching my daughter ice skate, reading this, and and, and I'm and I'm I'm pretty outraged at this. And at the same time, you know, I'd been watching Glenn Beck uh, during the week, and and it occurred to me they had nothing on Van Jones, and and sure enough, that night I read that in Saturday morning's newspaper. That night, Van Jones uh, resigns, um, and so uh, the New York Times yet chose to have this half-page article on this uh, former politician. I think the, the key news was just that she had made a mistake and said uh, a, a false statement. So they focused on that rather than the Van Jones case. And you're arguing that that is indicative of how the media approaches things. So it's not I think so. one instance that happens a lot. Exactly. In fact, that is the, the point of Chapter 8, where I follow around – or don't follow around, but I interviewed this journalist named Catherine Kirsten. Uh, she had gotten her job at the Minneapolis Star Tribune because she was a conservative. The Star Tribune decided to do an experiment where they put a conservative in the newsroom. And so I, I talked to her, Catherine Kirsten, to talk about you know how she gets ideas for topics. And um, uh, she had done the story about the – Flying imams and how the, the, these were these imams on the plane who were booted off because they were acting suspiciously like terrorists, and they decided to sue passengers on the plane who who turned them in. And uh, none of the other reporters were reporting on this story. And this Catherine Kirsten said, "Oh yeah, my conservative views that that definitely led to my pursuing the story, doing the research to see if there was a story in in there." And so I'd argue that you know the same thing is, is going on when you're a liberal and you're surrounded by liberals. This Van Jones story, you might not even hear about it, and even if you do hear about it, it just wouldn't interest you as much. E even if you you don't really have uh, an ideological activist bone in your body, even if you're you're not trying to change the world, just that this story wouldn't interest you as much, and therefore, if you're liberal, you, you're, you're less likely to report it. And that's uh, kind of the, another aspect of distortion theory. When that's where the bias comes, I, I think it's um, almost inevitable. If you don't have a balance of ideological views in the newsroom, you, you won't get a balance of these topics. Uh, you'll, you'll much more have the topics that liberals want you to hear. Tim, you've been very generous with your time today. I'd like to ask you one last question, which is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is basically what do you do about it? If you were czar for a day, how would you address this issue of bias and make sure that Americans get news with what you call clarity, with the, uh, the, unfair, the fairest and least biased, least uh, affected by people's opinions news that they could get? You know, that is a very difficult question, and I, uh, by the way, I'm a blogger now on ricochet.com, so I, I encourage readers to go to that. And I, I That's my. Uh, oh, I didn't realize. Oh, oh, gosh. Oh, congratulations. We're uh, both on a great site. Uh, uh, on Ricochet, I, I mentioned that I gave a talk to the Media Fairness Caucus within Congress, and this is um, 
uh, not a lot of members, I think something like a dozen members. I think they're all Republican who are interested in this, and I gave a talk about my book. And as I left, uh, Congressman Trent Franks, just kind of in passing, uh, he was literally about to go, had to rush down to the, the floor to cast a roll call vote, and he says, well – you know what can we do about it? You know, meaning we in Congress do about uh, media bias. And I had to say, well, uh, I said I had some ideas, but uh, I'll get back to you. And I, I posed this to Ricochet readers, and I actually got some conservatives on Ricochet were kind of angered by this. You know, what the heck is Congress doing about? You know, we've got First Amendment constraints. Congress should not be doing anything about that. I'm, and I'm largely sympathetic with that. And so, given that. You know what can be done, and um, all I can say is that um, at least for now, here's the, the the best answer I can give. In, in the epilogue of my book, I explain here's two small steps that maybe can be done. One, there could be a little more self-regulation within newsrooms. You know, one I, I argue that journalists should get to know conservatives better. You know, if, if lots of them live in Manhattan, and so not only are all their coworkers liberal, all their neighbors are too. And I suggested get out to places like Washington County, Utah. I, I literally described uh, this place that votes about they voted seventy-seven twenty-three for McCain. And I said, um, here's this gun store owner who is actually willing to give tours to any journalist who wants to go out and meet conservatives in, in his hometown. And um, uh, so that, and also I would encourage, I think journalists should be a little more transparent with their views. And I suggested in this uh, final epilogue of my book how much more open and transparent politicians are with their views and how journalists are the opposite. If you if you ask a journalist, you know, who'd you vote for in the last election? Almost to a person, I was I can't tell you that. I'm an objective journalist, you know. And uh, I said, well, you know, why does it have to be that? You know, why can't journalists say on a website, say, uh, here's what my political quotient is, or here's how, you know, I did vote in the last election. And I argue that, you know, this is what politicians do, and, and why not journalists? And I think if journalists finally did that, um, if even just one news outlet started it, say Fox News started it, say, you know, our journalists report, you know, here's what their views are, uh, why aren't all the other news outlets doing it? I think others might, it might have a snowball effect. And if that happened, at least I think voters could see that there is a huge disparity in, in the newsroom. And something's wrong. I, as I argue in the book that if a branch of government, say the House or the Senate, voted 90, you know, was. 93-7, liberal to conservative, or vice versa, I, I think there'd be something like a revolution in, in the country. And um, I think if more people could just know how unbalanced newsrooms are, I think it would almost force uh, the, the, the newsrooms to to adopt and, and change their ways. And I think that would go, uh, I think that would at least help. Tim Grosskloos, author of Left Turn. Thank you for joining us today on New Books in Public Policy. Thank you, Tevi. It's been, been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed my interview today with Tim Grosslose, the author of Left Turn. Tim takes this question of media bias very seriously. He applied rigorous social science methods to determine if it's true or not, and he came up with some surprising conclusions. I bet you were not surprised to find out that 18 of the 20 top media organizations lean to left, according to Tim Scale, but you may have been surprised to find out that the Wall Street Journal is the organization that leans the most to the left in their reporting. You'll find this and other surprising insights in Tim's book. This is Tevi Troy signing off, and as I say each week, keep reading.